listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. And I think it's clear that whether you're excited for it or not, the holidays are upon us. So I hope you enjoyed this past week. Uh, You know, the book of James says that the the prayer of a righteous man is effective as it is working. And so I think this whole uh, season will will reveal to us if our prayers of let this food be a nourishment to our body um, are being heard by the Lord, and be reflective of the state of our heart. Um, I hope you enjoyed Thanksgiving with your family. It's it's an interesting marker of time, as like, because as soon as we get past Thanksgiving, it really feels like the end of the year is upon us, and we have these these rhythms that kind of mark our life, and, and one of them within the scope of belonging to church is the kickoff of Advent, that we know after, after we hit Thanksgiving that Sunday, it's, it's, it's Christmas season. Uh, the decor changes in the church. The, uh, the songs uh, we get to, to bring back as we have this marker of celebration within our lives that we call Advent that leads to the celebration of Christmas. And I hope there is some, um, some familiarity and some comfort in that. There are, there are good things about having these rhythms within uh, the scope of our, our faith that even gets reflected out into the culture at large uh, within uh, the stores and uh, just kind of that whole seasonal change that takes place as we get ready uh, for Christmas. And we know that the end of the year is coming, and so people are going to be having times off from work and spending more time with family and just participating in these elements of this season. I hope it is a a good and encouraging aspect of your lives. And and, and so Christians, collectively, the the church family within our history, um, began to mark this season of Advent around the 5th century. It's kind of where they trace it back to in parts of northern Italy, where the first Christian communities began to set apart this season. And it's kind of had some different iterations throughout history. And so kind of the first mentions of Advent as this like uh, recognition for the church, it was actually for people who were um, in a preparation phase to be baptized. So it was leading up to this other uh, church commemorative moment called the Feast of of Epiphany. And if somebody was um, um, kind of in that process of moving towards baptism, of declaring their faith, this Advent season was when they prepared for that moment, including, you know, times of fasting and, and seeking after and uh, searching after the Lord. And so that was kind of that first mention of this commemorative aspect of the season. And so that kind of continued on. And uh, as the church continued to develop and we have this collective history of the people of, of Jesus, these rhythms began to be established of these different ways throughout the calendar year. We recognize the different aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's kind of uh, become to be termed the liturgical calendar, if you've ever heard that, which includes like the Lenten season and Easter and then Advent as well. And um, kind of post that moment in history where they, they use this time to prepare for baptism, kind of the next emphasis that was put on this season was the second coming of Christ. 
that arrival aspect of, of Advent where Christians collectively like turning their hearts, let's remember, let's look ahead and know that Jesus will return. He will arrive again. He's, he's done it once and he will do it again. And so as these rhythms continued to develop, uh, it collectively became the season where the church, the people of Jesus Christ, began to reflect and remember the incarnation, that Jesus physically arrived on this earth. And it should be easy for us to remember because he conveniently arrived right when we decided to switch from BC to AD, which is just really helpful as we think about the scope of history, that he, he did that for us so we would have this clear marker of how we remember the recorded times. And so it is interesting uh, that as, as these traditions and these rhythms were established, it was in like the late 1800s that an actual a, a German carpenter began to make uh, Advent calendars. And that, so that was a tradition that kicked off in Germany in the end of the 19th century and then kind of uh, gained some popularity locally. But then really after World War II, this Advent calendar idea began to really take off even worldwide, as Christians all over the world began to celebrate this season and remember the incarnation while also looking ahead to the return of Christ, but we focus on this Christmas story. And so that has become a collective part of our lives, the, an observance a lot of us enter into of marking down the days, kind of beginning today, these four Sundays out from Christmas, of um, every single day kind of reminding ourselves like, hey, this many days till the birth of Jesus is celebrated, which it has kind of taken off and has become part of culture, and you could even say kind of a little bit commercialized with how Christian, this Christian season, this Christmas season has taken off. So you can, you can kind of find any theme of calendar these days from uh, not just candy, but also different types of beer, or you, you name it, you can find an Advent calendar for it. But it is this reminder of what the season is supposed to be about, that there is this arrival aspect, but there is this expectancy, that we are supposed to be looking ahead. We are supposed to have um, this kind of heart position of expecting Jesus to do something. And so I think there is this kind of collective struggle for Christians when it comes to Christmas is how, how can we not lose sight of why we actually recognize, commemorate, celebrate this season, post-Thanksgiving, before the end of the year, that we celebrate as Christmas. Like, how can we um, make sure we don't lose those redemptive elements with uh, the busyness of the season, with travel and family plans, with gift-giving, uh, with the whole Santa Claus conundrum? How can we make sure it's not lost on us, the, the importance of why collectively we as the people of Jesus have set aside this time and so I think for myself, one of the, the good reminders in, in church as we hit these Sundays every single year is that we really don't have to invent something new. In essence, uh, to me, it's like what it comes down to is we just need to remember the story. Like what are we actually commemorating? What are we looking ahead to? Why do we actually take this time? Why are we so festive? Why does the decor in our house change? Why do we have these holidays from work? Why do we have uh, little uh, boxes filled with chocolates that we can peel off every single day? And we just need to remember the story. 
And that is good for us. You know, one of the markers of holidays is typically time with family. And, and family is an important aspect of, uh, of just our regular lives, but also our, our faith that the way God kind of designed an aspect of his people and his movement to work is that collectively we are supposed to tell this story to one another. And so we get to do that within the church, and we have this adopted faith family that we all belong to, but it's also supposed to transcend into um, our uh, immediate family and how we're supposed to communicate these messages and this story of Jesus. And so I I love uh, the commendation uh, Paul makes to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, um, recognizing the faith in Timothy. He says that, you know, I first saw this faith in your grandmother and in your mother, and then also I am confident that is in you. And so you kind of see this progression of how uh, these reminders are supposed to work themselves out in our lives as we collectively pursue and follow Jesus, that we are supposed to tell the story to one another. And so I think for all of us, one of the things we could kind of lean into on that family side is that we should try to build the expectation. And so I think that's one of the great things that is built into uh, our current celebrations of Christmas with gift giving and with, uh, you know, uh, holiday parties and and time with family, especially um, as we have kids and just uh, interact all together, is that we can build expectation towards Christmas Day. And that is a good thing because that is what we are supposed to be remembering is Christ's arrival, that there was uh, uh, this scene transpiring in the first century in uh, Israel, in Judea, um, of um, looking for God being at work. And that's something we can build into our own rhythms this season, uh, both as a church and individually with our families and with even the people around us. How can we build this expectation and remembering this story uh, that we are a part of and get to be partakers of? And so that's what we're going to do as a church over these four Sundays leading up uh, towards Christmas is that we're just going to walk through the story. We're going to utilize the Gospel of Luke and just read it as it goes, as it leads up to the birth of Jesus and that celebration uh, that the entire world joins into as the God of the universe is found in human form and came to live among us. And so, uh, if you would, go ahead and and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, and we will begin in chapter 1 and take the the first half of chapter 1 this morning, and then we will uh, proceed over these next couple of weeks walking through uh, this Gospel's account of the birth of Jesus. And so, if you would, follow along with me as we begin in Luke 1, chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." 
And so uh, as we dig into the Christmas story this season, we have uh, chosen the Gospel of Luke, which has some uniquenesses out of the other Gospels. And so if you kind of know that breakdown, our, our first four books of the New Testament, we call the Gospels because they tell the story of Jesus, but they are written by four different men. Two of those Gospel accounts were written by two of the 12 disciples. So the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John uh, were two of the men who walked with Jesus um, in that season of his ministry. And so they had that those firsthand accounts. Uh, but then the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark were written by kind of that second generation of believers, people who were brought to the faith by the disciples. And so Luke, as you just kind of read right there, he's, he's writing his, his justification for why he wants to write down these accounts. And so he even says it. He's like, I want to compile this narrative. I have followed these things closely. And he is desiring to give an orderly account uh, for others to know the story. And so that is kind of interesting with Luke, uh, that as, as far as we know, kind of from the history of the church, um, he was brought to the faith or uh, soon became around the apostle Paul. And so that was the association he began to have with the other disciples, where he began to be exposed to people who had firsthand accounts of Jesus's life, including uh, potentially his mother, Mary. And so Luke, um, what we kind of know about Luke is was that he was kind of um, a structured person. So in the book of Colossians, Paul gives us two bits of information about Luke. One is that they call him the beloved physician. And so from our understanding is that Luke was some type of first century doctor. So I don't know what that looked like in the first century as far as accredited medical schools go, but I'm guessing he had some type of inquisitive mind. If he was inclined towards the sciences or towards uh, bodies of knowledge and understanding, that seems up his alley as far as wanting to know things and for things to make sense and to have structure. The other thing that um, uh, scholars and historians believe about Luke is that he was also a Gentile believer. So once again, in Colossians, Paul kind of drops this in. He talks about his uh, colleagues that are part of the circumcision, and Luke is not mentioned in that. And so what is believed is that Luke was uh, not a, a, a Jew, but was a Gentile believer in this area of the world who, who came to the faith and began to spend time with the apostles and then wrote down this account of Jesus. And so Luke authored two books in our New Testament, both the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. And so one of the things we kind of hold to in our, our Christian tradition and in our um, faith family is that Luke is often considered kind of the first Christian historian. So he wasn't writing just a, a letter of encouragement or instruction, but he began to write down the histories of both Jesus and then the Jesus movement. And so that's where we get the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, which is the other narrative in the New Testament of just explaining here are the different things that happened even after Jesus's ascension. And so he addressed uh, this writing uh, to some figure who nobody really knows who it is named Theophilus. And he also addresses the book of Acts uh, to Theophilus as well. And there's different kind of theories about who Theophilus might have been, if it was more of a title versus a name. But clearly, Luke saw it as important to give a detailed account of this story that we are still reading thousands and thousands of years later. And so uh, that is our beginning point as we enter into this Advent season. And so before we read on, I just want to make a note that Luke begins this story in a different place than all of the three other Gospels. 
It is nice that every gospel kind of has uh, some different aspects to give us a different perspective and point of view. And so Luke begins this story not with Jesus. But that is where we're going to begin this morning because the two are related in our recognition of what God was doing in the world back over 2,000 years ago. And one of the things we want to call to mind and remember this morning. So let's continue reading in Luke chapter 1 in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so this is where Luke begins his account. And I think it is interesting as we look at just the details Luke chooses to include is that there are a lot of um, th- uh, things included within the Gospels that you can confirm throughout time. So I love the confidence that we can have in the Word of God. And, you know, when Luke states that he wanted to provide an orderly account for people that are interested in these things, he does include uh, historically verifiable nuggets within it. And so one of the things you can pick up on is that he mentions who was kind of the king in the region at the time, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And so as we have had the Bible collectively for thousands of years, one of the things we have been able to do as kind of a people is check the facts of these different narratives against what we know historically. And so overwhelmingly, just so that you know, anytime uh, the Bible mentions both uh, a, a Roman emperor, perhaps, or a local king, almost always that has been confirmed by um, other historical accounts or even archaeological records. And so they actually have coins and writings that mention that Herod was king of Judea during this time. So thank you, uh, Luke, for being detailed in your account. But this is where he begins his story. He begins his story with a priest who is serving God and his wife. And he mentions some specific things about these two people. One is that they were older in their age. And then two is that they had been unable to have children. Now for us, as the people of God who've been around the Bible, who have celebrated a couple of Advent seasons together, we should recognize that this sounds very similar to another biblical story we have in the scriptures. And that would be the story of Abraham and Sarah. So once again, the the patriarch of the people of Israel, this man God called out and said, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to have this covenant relationship with you. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. What it said about Abraham and Sarah was also that they were advanced in age and had been unable to have children. And so there's this connection point we should make to what God is doing both in this story, in this account that we know is leading towards Jesus and to this collective lineage of God's relationship to his people. And so uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and who is soon going to arrive on the scene, uh, their son John, are part of this Christmas story. It says they are righteous and blameless before God, but they had been unable to have a child. This is something God has done before, and this is a marker of something significant within this Christmas story. And I would say that beginning our Advent season with the Advent of hope is appropriate. Let's keep reading verse 8. 
Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Incredible account right here of something significant God is doing. And one of the things that begins to be introduced in this moment uh, for the people of God in Israel is the reality that God is on the move. And so I know uh, collectively we kind of have this understanding of where the, the Old Testament ends with the prophet of Malachi to this moment in their history of the Jewish people. Uh, a lot of things have gone badly. And in fact, there is this season of absence of God interacting with his people. And so continually they've just been oppressed by foreign armies, foreign invaders. Uh, but this collective idea with the Jewish people of God revealing himself to through his word has grown silent. So we call this time uh, within our uh, collective Christian history the intertestamental period. Like uh, the prophet Malachi was on the scene, proclaimed from God, and then for 400 years no prophet had been on the scene. But now this priest named Zechariah, who year after year, day after day, is being faithful to God and trying to do what's right. He's trying to do his duty for his people and honoring God. He is in the temple where the presence of God is supposed to be, and an angel shows up and declares that something miraculous is going to happen that has not happened in a long time. God is on the move. And so one of the things I think for us that we can pick up on within this story is that God often does things in an unexpected way. He's kind of hard to predict as to how he is going to accomplish his purposes and his will in our lives and the lives around us. And in fact, you know, we, we probably take um, within our tradition probably the most time to commemorate Advent and Christmas and then also Easter. Those are kind of our, our big moments in our collective rhythms as a church, in both of those stories that we read at the same times every single year and we, uh, we preach on and recognize and have a significance to, should be a testament to the fact that God does unexpected things, but that he does have a plan. And so you can see that within this story that for hundreds and hundreds of years, nothing like this has occurred for these people. And I love the phrase that is used oftentimes in, in, this, in these stories and with some of the people that are uh, expectant still is that they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. That it is a people that are hanging on to these promises that were made generations and generations and generations ago and then suddenly something begins to happen. 
this priest that's on duty one day. Everybody probably knows him, that he's uh, that guy that is faithful, and people kind of wonder, like, maybe he has some secrets in it. Maybe that's why his wife can't get pregnant, but they're doing their thing every single year, every single day. He's performing his duty, and all of a sudden he gets a remarkable message that God is on the move, that God is doing something unexpected. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Incredible story. You know, one of the things um, I just kind of asked myself this week is that if, if God was doing something miraculous in our day, would we have a hard time believing it as Zechariah did? And I, I would just kind of guess that we would, because uh, I have a hard time believing sometimes that God loves me and doesn't get tired of me. And so if God was truly on the move and doing something miraculous, I think I might question it as Zechariah did. And so there are these parallels between this story, this couple, and Abraham and Sarah, that Abraham responded in the exact same way, that although in his um, everyday living, he would attest to the power and the ability of God. When it came to his specific circumstance, he kind of defaulted to being pragmatic. He's saying like, okay, angel showed up and says that you're going to have a baby, and his response is very fleshly. He's like, how is this to be? Biologically, this doesn't make sense we are both advanced in age. And that is the same way Abraham responded when God made that promise. And in both circumstances, it shows that God is up to something unexpected, but that God does have a plan. And so I love the response he gets from the angel. In verse 19, he says, I am Gabriel, and I love this justification. He says, I stand in the presence of God. It's a pretty powerful justification for the authority of the message that Gabriel delivered to Zechariah. And so one of the aspects I, I see just embedded in that is that when God promises something, he keeps his word. And so that is what Gabriel is saying. I stand in the presence of God. I heard this from the almighty God of the universe. And if God says something will take, pa take pass, it will if God says he will save his people, he will save his people. If Jesus says he will return, he will return. And this is true for Zechariah and Elizabeth. God delivers to them a child. And I just kind of wonder of how many years of prayer Zechariah and Elizabeth had um, 
uh, collectively taken together asking God for this gift and if they had at some point along the line given up. You know, how, how, many, how many years of their marriage had transpired of them consistently and faithfully asking God for this before maybe they had just stopped asking? And so you, you see this reality a lot with God in the scriptures of his faithfulness not coming in, in the way we expect, in the time we expect, but that God does fulfill what he has promised. And so I think it is important for us as we kind of enter into this season, it is interesting that the role that their child is going to take is this preparation aspect for the arrival of Christ. And so that's why it is linked to this Christmas story, and that's why uh, Luke does begin his gospel with Zechariah and with Elizabeth. Because the story of their son, as it unfolds, is that he does begin a, a preaching ministry calling people to repentance so that they can actually experience and understand who Jesus is. And I think that aspect of his life actually began at his birth. Because if you think about it, Zechariah being in this position of a priest and everybody knowing that they were much too old to have children— and then Elizabeth getting pregnant after Zechariah receives a vision in the temple, I think that would have begun for the people in their proximity to be expectant that God was up to something. So even the announcement that she was pregnant after Zechariah had been on duty, those people, including Zechariah and Elizabeth, would have seen the parallel between Abraham and Sarah, and so it would have begun to remind them that this God, this God of the Jewish people that brought them through so much, through the, the years of wandering, through the years of slavery, uh, brought them to the promised land, through the ups and downs of the kingdom, that perhaps he was up to something again and he was going to fulfill and be faithful. And so it would have grown this expectancy that God was up to something. And I think one of the things that would have sparked for a lot of people, maybe if they were uh, willing to admit it or not, is that maybe people would have begun to hope. That the issues they were facing, that the problems that had plagued their lives and plagued them as a people, that maybe God had a solution to those things. I do think even this announcement began to prepare the way for the birth of Jesus. So that maybe people were a, a little less skeptical a couple of months later, when uh, other signs began to appear, this star kind of came out of nowhere, and uh, the census was being taken, and then uh, these shepherds began to talk about what they had seen this one night in a little town called Bethlehem. I think collectively, we as people all need hope. And it can be difficult in this season. I know I just often reflect on uh, just kind of this moment of history we're living through, and it just constantly seems more and more tumultuous. And I know that isn't unique out of history, but it does seem unique out of the past couple of decades that things constantly feel like they're moving more and more to being chaotic versus under control. And so I know just that kind of compounded effect it has on us as people is we begin to grow cynical, that we think there is only one direction the course of history is going to go, and it's going to go badly. And that might be true, but it should be a reminder to us during this season that our hope is not in the course of history, but in the history of our God and his work in the world around us. 
we need to remember this advent of hope. That although our lives, maybe literally or figuratively, feels like have been barren, that we have not yet received what we thought was due us, that we can remember that God is up to something. You know, I like how the, the Old Testament prophets put it, that he, he doesn't sleep and he, he doesn't slumber, that he is constantly drawing uh, our days in the course of this world he's created towards his ends as his will is unfolded throughout history around us. And so I think for us together, for our own mutual encouragement, one of the things we should try to remember during this season is to be a hopeful person. Like, cynicism is easy, and it accomplishes nothing. And so if our, our claim as a Christ follower is that we worship the God of all power, all glory, all dominion, one of the markers of our life should be a clinging to hope that God is up to something and God is going to complete what he has promised. We can be realistic about the world around us while still being a people of hope. And we need that for ourselves and our neighbors need it. And our family members need it and our coworkers need it that as everything else feels like it's spinning out of control, we as the people of Jesus can be at peace because we know and are convinced that 2,000 years ago, a virgin teenage girl named Mary received a message that would change the rest of the world, that the God of the universe was going to make an appearance into our mess, that he would be Emmanuel, God with us, and not only that, we know that that child that grew up to be the savior of the world who lived a perfect, blameless, sinless life and then offered his body on the cross for the sins of the world, that he was killed, that he was buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead, overcoming sin and death, and then he bodily ascended back into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father until the appointed time where he is going to arrive again and bring about the consolation of his people for all time. That maybe to some that might sound like a fairy tale, but for me, I'm waiting for the day where my faith and hope will be made sight and the arrival of Jesus will be complete and we will have Advent for eternity and a Christmas that never ends with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I ask for your help to redirect us this holiday season back to Jesus and back to hope. God, that every time we uh, see a Christmas light, that we would be reminded that you were the light that came into a dark world. God, that as we purchase presents, we would remember that you have given us the ultimate gift in Jesus. God, that as we spend extra time with family, we would remember that you brought us into your family. God, I pray that all the, the little trappings of Christmas time would serve their purpose of reminding us of the greatest story that's ever been. Of you redeeming your world 
by your own life. God, as we prepare, God, just let us be expectant. I thank you for uh, the faithfulness of Zechariah and Elizabeth, God, that they were um, performing their duties and doing the things they were supposed to year after year, even as they dealt with disappointment. God, in the moment came where hope entered into their lives. God, and that their story can help prepare us to encounter you. Be glorified, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.